الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنة لا يوم الدين All praise due to Allah May Allah's peace and blessings be on his last prophet Muhammad Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam And on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day The topic of today's presentation is Tawheed But we'll be looking at Tawheed through Surah Al-Ikhlas So we could call the general topic Reflections on Surah Al-Ikhlas This is the 112th or 13th Surah, 12th Surah of the Qur'an and concerning this chapter of the Qur'an we have a narration a tradition of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, wherein his wife Aisha reported that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, had sent a man in charge of a detachment, an army detachment and this man used to lead the group in prayer and what he did was that every time he closed the prayer he would close it with this chapter of the Quran when they returned they informed the Prophet Muhammad who said to him or said to them why does he do this they went and they asked him why he was doing this and he replied because it is a description of Ar-Rahman, Allah the Most Merciful and I love to recite it the Prophet Muhammad then said inform him that Allah loves him there is another narration reported by Anas another of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad in which he said that there was, there was a man from the Ansar that is the people of Medina who welcomed the Prophet and his companions وسلم, when they had to leave Mecca and re-establish themselves in Medina a man amongst them used to lead the prayer in the Quba Masjid Quba Masjid is the first Masjid to be built uh, by the Prophet Muhammad and his companions and it's just out in the, on the outskirts of Medina he used to lead them in prayer and every Salah that he led he would begin the Salah by reciting this chapter Qul Allahu Ahad and then he would recite another chapter from the Quran after it that is after reciting Surah Al-Fatih uh, he did this continually then the people who were praying there they asked him that it is as if when he reads this chapter Qul Allahu Ahad that he finds that it is not enough reward for him that he needs to read some other chapter afterwards so they suggested to him either just read this or just read another chapter but he refused he said either you accept me reciting in this way or I will stop leading the prayer you know because it's optional you can choose somebody else you don't like what I'm doing you can choose somebody else but he was the best reciter among them so they really didn't want to choose anybody else 
On one occasion, Prophet Muhammad came to visit them because he would come, especially on Juma, he used to walk to Masjid Quba and he would pray there. So they asked him, you know, they told him about this and asked him what they should do. And he said to the person, what is preventing you from doing what your friends have asked you to do? And he said, Verily, I love this chapter of the Quran. And the Prophet then said, Your love for it has put you in paradise. Another companion of the Prophet by the name of Abu Sa'id, he quoted the Prophet as saying, to the companions on one occasion are any of you unable to recite a third of the Quran at night that is every night now the Quran you know 114 chapters is pretty long when he said that the companions felt it was too difficult for them so they said who amongst us can handle that O Messenger of Allah and he replied that Kullu Allahu Ahad is equal to one third of the Quran. We also find that the Prophet Muhammad's wife Aisha reported that every night before going to bed, the Prophet Muhammad when he sat in his bed before going to sleep, he would put his hands together, he would blow in his hands, and then he would recite this chapter of the Quran, along with the following two chapters after it, Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. And then he would wipe his hands over his body, from his head, his face, the front of his body, and whatever else he could reach. He would do this three times. Now, these different narrations from the companions of the Prophet Muhammad show us that this chapter had a special place in the hearts of the Muslims. So much so that some would recite it in every prayer that they made, either beginning their recitation of Quran or closing their recitation. And this was something which was approved by the Prophet Muhammad Furthermore, he informed us that it was equal in value to one-third of the Qur'an. What this means to us, one-third of the Qur'an, it doesn't mean that if we recite it three times, this is actually equal to reciting the Qur'an. Because that would then discourage people from bothering to recite the whole Qur'an. If you are going to get the same reward from reciting this chapter three times, as you would get from reciting or reading the whole Qur'an, then why bother to read the whole Qur'an? It would be much more difficult. This will take you weeks, maybe a month, maybe more. The idea here, what was understood, not that it was equal in the sense that it may be, you may replace the recitation of the Qur'an by reciting it three times, but that if we were to take all of the topics of the Qur'an and we were to put them in three main categories, this chapter covers one of the categories. One third of what the Qur'an is talking about 
is found in this chapter of the Quran. It summarizes one third of the concepts of the Quran. Before reciting the Quran, we are told by Allah in the chapter known as An-Nahl, the B, verses 98. Whenever you are reciting the Quran, you should seek refuge in Allah from the cursed Satan. This is a commandment of God for us to do so. Why? Because in the second chapter of the Quran, in the second verse, Allah says, ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابُ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهِ This is the book in which there is no doubt guidance for those who fear God. This book is the only book existing on the earth that contains 100% the word of God. As we say, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Allah says, it is the book of guidance for those who fear Allah. It doesn't mean that anybody who picks up the book and they read it, they're going to be guided. Only those who fear Allah, when they pick up that book and they start to read it, they will be guided. And I will tell you from my own experiences, in the eastern province, amongst the American troops, over the past three months, we had a number of cases of people who would pass through the tent, we had a tent set up, an information tent with information about Saudi Arabia as well as information about Islam and in one corner books, Islamic books were being sold and among them copies of the Quran were being sold. We had people who would come through, buy a copy of the Quran, leave, come back a week later and say, how do I become Muslim? We'd give them no explanation about Islam or any detail. No. They just took the book, bought it, they read it, and that was enough. Because they feared God. Myself, I tell you very honestly, when I became Muslim, I, the first book I read was not the Quran. And probably if I had read the Quran, and I had looked at it to some degree, it would not have guided me. Because at the time I was a communist. I didn't even believe in God. So when I picked up the Quran and looked at it, it was, there was nothing in it for me. Instead, what I found by reading a book called the uh, Islam, the Misunderstood Religion by Muhammad Qutb, in which he made a comparison between Islam Christianity, uh, uh, communism, capitalism, socialism, from a social, religious, moral point of view, 
he was the, he showed me clearly that the system of Islam from an economic, social, moral point of view was far superior to communism. So I became convinced from a political point of view that the system of Islam was suitable for running a state and benefiting people. But as far as believing in God, this came stages later. Because you don't go from a total, you know, denial of the existence of God to the acceptance of God, you know, in a second. This is something which may take time. Unless, you know, sometimes some people have certain, you know, crises in their lives which can cause them to uh, turn to God. But for myself, I'm just, I'm just saying that to say that it is as Allah said. This book is guidance for those who fear God. So if a person truly fears God, he picks up the Quran no matter what his background is. He will be guided. So knowing that, we know that the evil force, the evil forces, Satan and his compatriots, they want for us what? Misguidance. They want us to stray from the path. They don't want us to find guidance. So naturally when a person goes to get the Quran, to read the Quran, they are going to try their hardest to make sure that the person doesn't benefit from the Qur'an. And we all know, we are encouraged to read the Qur'an daily. To read some Qur'an daily. You know, and as it said, the Qur'an is the most widely read book in the world. Unfortunately, most Muslims read it in a ritualistic fashion. You know, they don't know Arabic, they learn how to read Arabic and they just repeat the words. But they don't really understand what is being said. But still, those who would go to pick up the Quran to read it, to understand it, Satan or the satanic forces will come and try to discourage the person from reading and benefiting. So what happens? You sit down to read the Quran set your time you decided you're going to read the Quran at this time every day you open the Quran and you find yourself yawning you know, start to yawn oh, you know, your, your eyes are starting to get heavy now but why? your eyes weren't heavy you weren't yawning before you picked up the Quran but all of a sudden you pick up the Quran and you find yourself and you're telling it then the thought comes to you I'm kind of tired now you know it's after Fajr in the early morning, maybe I need some more sleep. I'll read it later. So you close the book and you go to sleep. And of course you get busy the rest of the day, you don't read it that day. And like this. This is how the satanic forces can swerve you from the, from the path without you realizing it. I'm sure you have all experienced this with the Salah. Because Salah is recitation of Quran also. Our prayer. You get up to pray. And you were quite fine before. As soon as you get up to pray, you find half the people are praying and they are yawning. Why? Why? Why do you start yawning as soon as you get up to pray? This is a part of that satanic effect of trying to swerve people away from benefiting from the guidance that is there in the reading of the Quran and the remembrance of God. 
So because of that, we find that Allah has commanded us that whenever we are going to read the Qur'an, we should seek refuge in Allah from Satan. And this means doing it sincerely. Because if you just go through the ritual, you know, you're going to read, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajeem, and you go ahead. But it's just words you're saying. Then don't be surprised if you find yourself yawning and closing the book. Because seeking refuge in Allah is something which has to come from your heart. When you seek refuge in God to protect you, you have to say it with all your heart. It has to really come from your heart for it to have an effect. After seeking refuge in Allah, we begin the recitation of the Qur'an by saying Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim In the name of Allah, the Beneficent, the Most Merciful This is something that we are encouraged to do generally in our lives Before doing things, we say Bismillah To remind ourselves that we are doing it in the name of God for the pleasure of God why also? because if you are in the habit of saying Bismillah before doing things then if you are going to do something which isn't good you are going to feel shy to say Bismillah and this may catch you to help you to reflect and say well no I shouldn't be doing this I can't say Bismillah before it I shouldn't be doing it we shouldn't do anything in this life that we will feel shamed to say Bismillah before it. In the name of God I'm doing this. The first verse of this chapter, a very short chapter, revealed in Mecca, comprising of only four verses. The first verse, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ قُلْ say هُوَ هِي Allah Allah أَحَدٌ is unique say the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was commanded to tell the people when we read the Quran this is the same thing we should say. This is something that should be a part, a basic fundamental part of our faith. Allah is unique. And I didn't say Allah is one. You will find this translated as one. Ahad as one. But actually the word which means one is wahid. This is the word which really means one in Arabic. There's a difference between the word Wahid and the word Ahad. Allah could have used the word Wahid here. But He chose to use Ahad. And Al-Wahid is one of Allah's names also. But Allah uses the name here Ahad. What is the difference? The difference is that when you say Wahid, one, this doesn't stop there being another one. <coughs> what do I mean? I mean, if I say 
there is one bottle of uh, water here it doesn't mean that there isn't another bottle of water in the other room there can be no problem by saying one here it doesn't exclude all others but when we use the term ahad it means it is the only one there are no others and because of that in Arabic we will use the term wahid to describe somebody we can say Hunaka rajulun wahid but we cannot use the term ahad to describe somebody this term ahad is only used to describe Allah you cannot say rajulun ahad no in Arabic it is not acceptable Rajulun Wahid but not Rajulun Ahad so there is something here Allah chose this word to get across a particular idea to us and this is the essence of the meaning of the whole chapter Allah is unique He is one of a kind. He is unique in his characteristics. He is unique in his actions. Anything that describes God, this is unique to God alone. Anything which describes his actions, they are unique to God alone. What I mean by it, I will explain in more detail. We go on with the chapter. The next line, Allah says, Allahu Samad. Allah is the one to whom all needs are directed. The term Samad, it has a number of meanings. One of them is that he is the one to whom all needs are directed because he is the only one who can fulfill needs. So people, even though they may direct their needs to other than Allah, in fact they are directing them to Allah. Because Allah is the only one, God is the only one who can answer our needs. The term also means that he is the self-sufficient he does not depend on anyone he is the eternal no one caused him he is without beginning without end and Allah here is repeated for a purpose we said قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ we could have said قُمْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدُ الصَّمَدُ Describing Allah without saying Allahu Samad. Or we could have said قُمْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدُ وَاللَّهُ الصَّمَدُ But Allah didn't use either of these two forms. He chose this particular form. To emphasize, there is an emphasis 
by repeating Allah's name here, there is an emphasis that whoever does not have these characteristics, this is not a true God. Any God who is not unique is not a true God. He is a part of creation. Any God who is not eternal is not the one who can answer your needs. This is not a true God. This is why you find in many places in the Quran Allah asks the question of those who worship other than God. You know, how it is they are worshipping these others besides God who can neither benefit them nor harm them. They can do nothing for them or against them. Because it is God alone who can fulfill our needs. So anyone who does not have these characteristics is not or cannot be considered a true God. So Allah repeats His name here to emphasize this. And the end is deleted because as I said it could have been that is and Allah is the self-sufficient because the second <coughs> verse is a result of the first it's not describing two separate characteristics by Allah being unique there results in him also being self-sufficient because that is unique everything else in creation needs something else so if Allah is unique he is the one, the natural result of that is that he must be self-sufficient self-subsistent he doesn't need anyone to exist, he has no needs The third verse, Allah says, Lam yalid wa lam yulad. He does not give birth, nor was he born. He doesn't have offspring, nor does he have parents. This is another way of putting it. Why? Allah didn't begin by saying he doesn't have parents nor does he have offspring because that's the sort of norm that you would expect the father then the child father is more important than the child you know but why? why did Allah instead put talking about having a child having offspring before talking about having a father or mother why because when you look at the masses of mankind who have beliefs, distorted beliefs about God how many of them believe that God had a father? very very I won't say there are none there probably are some somewhere but most people the problem that they have is God having offspring this is what they have this is the main area of the problem 
Whether you look at the pagans, pagan Meccans, they believe that the angels were daughters of Allah, of God. Or you look at the Jews, and the Jews started talking about sons of God even before it entered into Christianity. Because you can find in Genesis, Genesis 4, verse 6, <coughs> which says, it says, after God has created Adam and Eve, they have been sent out of the garden, they're on earth, and they're having children. And the numbers increase. It says, when men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not remain in man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The sons of God. The idea is introduced right from the very beginning of the Bible. This is in, as the Jews held it. They're talking about some mysterious sons of God. There have been various interpretations to explain who they are. In the apocryphal books in Enoch, uh, Enoch, first Enoch uh, 6 to 10, the origins of the devils are traced to these sons of God. That they were originally angels who fell from grace and became devils. So we have here this idea of sons of God. And of course, Christians, we know that they took the idea of sons of God right out to the limit. Though, if you go through the New Testament, in spite of all its distortions, you will not find a single verse in the New Testament where Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the Son of God. What you will find is he says, I am the son of man. But people around him will be saying, as the son of God did so and so and so and so, the son of God, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. These are all the statements of those around Jesus, as placed in the Gospels. But when you read the section, which is just the words of Jesus, which come in the quotation marks, you will not find anywhere that Jesus says, I am the Son of God. But this idea became prevalent in Christian teachings as they spread to Greece and to Rome, where the idea of God having sons was very popular. Especially when it reached Rome, where the sun god, Apollo, he was the popular god at the time. They believe Apollo was the god who used to ride his chariot across the sky, pulling behind him the sun. That's how the sun rose and sets. This was Apollo riding his chariots and carrying the sun. 
he was the sun god and he was also the son of the main god and at the same time he was worshipped on Sunday this is where the name Sunday comes from if you go back in the encyclopedia this is what you will find Sunday was the day for the worship of the sun god and the early Christians who worshipped on what day? on the Sabbath this is the day that Jesus and his companions worshipped the Sabbath Saturday which begins on Friday it begins on Friday evening and it ends by Saturday evening this was changed to attract by Paul and his companions to attract the pagans of Rome so Sunday became the day of worship for Christians they're not following Jesus they're following the product of human beings as time passed and the religion was adjusted and modified to suit the times but the essence here is that there is the belief that God had a son so here's the problem the idea of God having offspring so Allah in this chapter here he says Lam yalit. he does not have offspring and this is part of being unique isn't it this is unique I mean the unique one is the one who has no offspring because otherwise everything else in creation has offspring all the other beings human beings they're having offspring they have children so once you say God is having children well, he's saying he's like like everybody else having children he's not unique anymore then God goes on to say Walam yulad nor was he born he has no father for those people who are caught up in the idea that God has to come from someone from somewhere somehow and Abu Huraira companion of the Prophet Muhammad he said that the Prophet Muhammad said that Satan comes to every one of you and says who created this and who created that until he questions who created your Lord when he comes to that one you should seek refuge in Allah and keep away from it this is a natural question induced and encouraged by Satan and if you tell your child you know as you're educating your children you tell them Allah created the sky Allah created the earth Allah created the trees Allah created the rivers Allah created the animals Allah created you Allah created me the child then turns and says well who created Allah it's a natural sequence here and it is something which you have to answer actually for, for a young person it's not enough for you to tell them no 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 don't ask this question a'udhu billahi you know you don't seek refuge in Allah from that person from the child and turn them away no you must address the question and the question can be addressed fairly simply you explain to them 
that creation means having a beginning. When something is created, it means it had a beginning. And if God is the creator, if he has a beginning, then he is a part of creation. He's not the creator anymore. And the one who created him, that's God. So we have two existences. We have the creator and the creation. If God was created, then you have to take him from over here and put him in creation. And if there was not a God who was uncreated, there would be no creation. See, because if each, if each and every one of us, everything here depended on someone or some force to create us, and that force was itself created, then nothing would exist. There had to be a force which had no creator which causes everything to be created. Of course, you know, depending on the age of the child, this might not quite satisfy them. I mean, they may say yes, yes, but <laughs> it requires some thought, you know. But this is the general explanation which can be given. It's not a problem, a question which cannot be answered in, in that sense. The point is, God is uncreated. For Him to be God, He has to be uncreated. If He was created, then He is not unique. This is part of being unique, that He is the only one who is not created. He is the Ahad, the only one not created. The last verse, the fourth and last verse, وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ كُفُوًا And there is none like him. No one is like him. This is repeating the ideas which were developed from the very first verse. At the same time, it indicates also that he had no wife or partner. The verse before said he had no father and he had no son. This verse also implies that he had no partner. And there's another verse in the Quran in Surah Al-An'am that's chapter 6 verse 101 in which Allah <coughs> described himself as Badi'ul Samawati wal Ard Anna Yakunu Lahu Walad Walam Yakul Lahu Sahiba Wahalaka Kunashe. That is, he is the originator of the heavens and the earth. How could it be that he has a son when he had no partner, no wife? And he created everything. One who has created everything, who owns everything, 
Where is his partner going to come from? From creation? How can it be his partner? No need. If he wishes something to be, he wills it, be, and it is. He has no father, no son, no partner. And as I said, this verse reconfirms the idea which is developed from the very first verse that he is unique. There is none similar to him in any way, shape, or form. Now, when we look at all of the acts of shirk, shirk being various forms of idolatry, when we look at all of them, we see that in one way or another, they involve the destruction of the uniqueness of God. Every form of shirk, every form of idolatry, every form of worship of other than God, it involves destroying the uniqueness of God. For example, when people pray to idols, believing that the idols are personified in creation, that these gods that they made with their own hands, somehow the God, God becomes present in this idol, then they are making God no longer unique. The idol, you can go and chip another idol, and everyone can have an idol in his home. There's no uniqueness here anymore. Just like you have many human beings, you have many idols. Uniqueness of God is gone. When you have people praying to saints, as in, as in Catholicism, for example, or you may find ignorant Muslims in different parts of the world praying to people who they call saints, or those who pray to intermediary gods, they believe in one God, but they believe there are intermediary gods between themselves and God. What they do is they make God like their earthly leaders. In that, if you want to see the head of the organization, the director of this hotel, the Intercontinental, you as a person who is cleaning the rooms cannot just go walking into the director's office, you knock on the door, you come walking in, you know, uh, I would like to have some words with you. No. You will go to the supervisor of cleaners and you will tell them your problem and he goes to the supervisor of the supervisors and he then goes, you know, to the vice president who talks to the president for you. The director, the vice director talks to the director. In this way, your problem gets solved and they call it the chain of command. This is something the army is famous for. The chain of command. You always go to the person next above you and he will talk to the one above that to keep things organized. You don't have confusion, people just coming from home. This is how things get done in this life. So what happens is that people are putting this now on God. They're making God like human beings, like a human leader. For organizational purposes, it's better you go through this saint who will go through Muhammad Wasallam, you know, the prophets, and then they will talk to God for you. That way you get your problems solved. But in doing that, they are making God like creation.
also if we look in the case of those who deny God's existence we have a body of people who call themselves atheists from the communists or capitalists who are atheists scientists some they deny God's existence altogether there is no God what do they do? when they deny God's existence then nature becomes a God for them they talk about mother nature mother nature it becomes their God and when you try to look and to understand in their lives what forces are controlling their lives for them the main force is chance chance because we have God yes this is the general to explain how we came into existence how we have evolved to where we were to remove the need for God to be there to create however this theory is in fact only a theory it is not fact it has been proven false on many accounts the dinosaurs who were the biggest the strongest the most powerful became extinct and the little cockroach that cockroach was finding all these sprays to kill he was around from the time of the dinosaurs that's what they tell us and he hasn't changed they find you know cockroaches caught in uh, in amber you know different substances that preserve them they look at the same cockroach since that time he's still here dinosaurs are gone and when they trace this theory back eventually they must come to a beginning and then they're stumped because if we trace man back as they say he evolved out of non-living materials and then we trace these non-living materials back with the big bang theory back to the beginning when the big bang occurred and everything started to spread out matter started to spread in the universe we asked them well where did that original portion of matter that started the big bang come from we don't discuss that this is something unknowable or they were saying it was eternal it was always there when they make the qualities of God again on matter we also find that all of the deviant groups sects that broke away from the true religion of God all of them broke away by destroying the uniqueness of God you wonder who are the Shiites of Iran why do a number of Muslims don't consider them to be true Muslims they pray they say la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the last messenger of Allah they fast 
they make Hajj and they pay Zakah. So why aren't they considered to be true Muslims? Because when you go into the basis of their belief concerning God and man, you find in it the destruction of the uniqueness of God. Because they hold that they have certain leaders, twelve, who they call the Imams, who they believe were infallible. Not like the infallibility of the Pope. For the Catholics, the Pope, when he is invested with the office of Pope, then he becomes infallible. Infallible means he cannot commit any mistakes. Somehow he becomes, you know, as one with God, whereby his actions are guided, every decision he makes are, is correct. So he can make changes in the basic belief of half of Christendom. He can change the belief, you know, fundamentally. He has that power because he is infallible. So you find, for example, people who are used to pray to St. Christopher. St. Christopher is the patron saint of the travelers. They make a little idol of him you know, as a man carrying a little baby sitting on his shoulder, which was supposed to be the Christ child. And this is the image of Saint Christopher. If you go in the encyclopedia and you read about Saint Christopher, they tell you he was worshipped. People, when they're going on trips, they would pray to Saint Christopher to protect them in their journey and take them back safely. Obviously, people have been doing it for centuries. Back in the 70s. The Pope at the time, after certain research done by the Catholic scholars, made a papal decree cancelling St. Christopher from the list of saints. He informed the people that St. Christopher was fictitious. He did not exist. He was a fable, a myth. So you can't worship him anymore. So who made Catholicism? Was it from God? Was it from Jesus? It's from man. He is infallible. He can decide. But that infallibility from the time he received the office. In the case of the Imams, for the Shiites, they believe that the Imams were infallible from the time they were born till the time they died total infallibility. It was impossible for them to do anything wrong. That is God. God alone is infallible. Man is fallible. He commits mistakes. God alone makes no mistakes. And this is why again when you go back into the Old Testament where you see Verses referring to God repenting for what he had done. You say what? What is this? Is this God? God does not repent. Man repents. You repent when you did something, you didn't know what the effect was going to be, then it, it happened, turns out to be bad, and you feel sorry about it. It's not God. God is infallible. So when they put this characteristic of God on human beings, then they have destroyed an aspect of the uniqueness of God. 
also they hold that the Imams were omniscient they knew the past the present and the future they knew all things again this is the God alone God alone knows all things and of course naturally once you put individuals on this status where they are infallible they know all things and they hold also that the atoms of the universe are submitted to them then naturally they are going to worship them and that's what happened they pray to the Arimah they pray to them to God and only God can answer the prayers so in this way they destroy the uniqueness of God we have another body of people known as the mystics commonly called Sufis the essence of Sufism is the belief that man contains a divine soul that the soul of man is divine it is from God and that the most important thing in a man's life is that he tries to get back to God to reunite that part of him which is divine with the divine and what is, what is happening here is that once you say your soul is divine means it's immortal it is a portion of God then God now is not unique anymore He is the only one who is immortal He is the only one who is divine so they destroy the uniqueness of God here by attributing to the human soul divinity so the surah speaks about the essence of Islam one third of the meanings of the Quran Tawheed the uniqueness of God this we have to be very clear on if we understand this then we will protect ourselves from falling into any form of idolatry if we don't understand this then we will fall this means what is included in this is that the laws which govern man are supposed to be the laws of God because he is the only one who has the right to set laws for mankind that is his domain this is why Muslims are obliged to try to implement that in their lives that the law of the land be the laws of God because these are the laws which don't change 
doesn't change from one president to the next president you know from one you know king to the next king or from one uh, minister to the next minister these laws are standard from God so that they don't change they're not for any particular person's particular benefit angry you know he presses the button the whole affair of the nation can you know, go up in smoke based on that so we don't put ourselves in that situation well yeah, these are you know rational you know uh, interpretations <coughs> let's put them that way you know the basis is the Prophet Muhammad recommended it should not be and we know that the, the state is a we could say an extension of the family and the head of the family is male as the norm well I just mentioned no no I mentioned to you there is Prophet Muhammad said that a people who are led by a female will not succeed they're doomed to failure No, it's in spirit. I wouldn't say that at all, but I think history has shown otherwise. The most successful nations have been those that have been led by males. America, which is the most successful nation of the 20th century, has never had a female leader. No, this is consi- consider Britain, right? And Britain's situation. And if Thatcher's successes were so great, why they removed her and replaced her with a male? I mean, this is saying something about the state of the country and their own ideas. I'm saying in limited success in some areas doesn't mean overall success does not mean overall success and as we said if we look historically speaking even when you have a female who is leading like you have in for example in Philippines Korea Kino, the male figures who are around her they're the ones that are really leading she is a figurehead she's a figurehead And history, as we said, of the 20th century, and in times past, have shown that these successful, because if you compare it, because when you talk about success, you see you're talking about relative success, right? The relative success of part of the Thatcher era in comparison to those who came before her. Uh, but what about those who came before them? Maybe it was more successful in her time. And what about those who are coming after major, may improve situation? You look back and say hers was a failure in comparison to majors. So it's relative. But what we have to compare, we must compare on a national scale. Compare England to America. And the successful one is the one which didn't have any female presidents. And has no plans for female presidents. <laughs> <laughs> 
They are not safe openly. They have no plans. They haven't even got a vice president who is female. This plural form we, and it's only we, right? We don't find they, which is also plural form. We have he, but we don't have they. We don't have them. We just find we. Why? From I. Because in Arabic, as in English, we have what is known as the royal we or the majestic we. When Queen Elizabeth is reading to the nation what she plans to do, she says, we will visit Saudi Arabia. We will visit Sri Lanka. Why we? Just her. I. But this we is called the royal we. It indicates, you know, magnificence or, or greatness. Similarly in Arabic, this plural is also used. In the case of the first person. We use it also in the case amongst ourselves of uh, the third person too. Or the second person. We will say, for example, we meet one person, we'll say, Salam Alaikum. Peace be on all of you. But it's just you. Technically in the language, what's logical is for us to say, Salam Alaika. Enter. You. One. But we say, Salam Alaikum. This is more, gives you more. You know, in Arabic, when the person is, is addressing another person, they address them as a plural form to indicate, giving them kind of honor. So this is what is the, you know, part of that meaning coming out in the term of we. It doesn't indicate in any way, shape or form that Allah is a plural. Because Allah has made it in this surah that we just looked at very clearly that Allah is one, unique, indivisible, without parts or parts. No. I know some people say, oh, when Allah uses we, he's talking about himself or the angel. No, no. Because he'll say, for example, when he created Adam, you know, and we created him, what the angels created Adam? No. Allah created Adam. So, yeah, um, naturally, uh, you know, this, uh, trying to find support, but the, the, the text of the Quran is so clear, so crystal clear about the fact that God is one unique being without partner, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, or whatever, that that doesn't provide enough of a basis for one to try to argue that the Trinity exists in Islam. No way. Go ahead, yes, you had the other question. A person that uh, 
raggiungi oggi le scorte. Tra tutti gli strati della frontiera, nel caso di spiaggiare, il suo lavoro per sentire, deve fare più capi, capi di stare di molto. In relationship to his heartbeat? Well, I wouldn't say that the taking of the soul is related to the heartbeat. Because you have people in India who practice yoga who can stop their heart from beating. Yeah. In general, when somebody has his heart beating, stop the thing is from his death. No. Many cases, a person's heart stops beating and they hit him on the chest and start beating again. They bring the electric, uh, electrode, they hit the boot and it starts beating again. I would like to supplement a better question with Bila. Which part of the brain is gone? Which is so? Which part of the brain is gone? We have no authority to say. We cannot say it is situated in the heart and it's connected to the heartbeat. No. Whether it is throughout the body, infused in every cell, God alone knows. We do know that the body can function to a certain degree without the presence of the soul. Because if you hook up the person to the heart lung, he is dead. And his heart can still keep beating and his you know, fingernails growing and putting, as long as you keep giving him nourishment, he can continue. But he is dead. You take the machine off and it all stops. You keep the machine on and it keeps going. So, the reason why I ask you is that in this nowadays the modern life, this is something that we can't find the heart from the That's right, it's no problem. As long as you understand that the heart is not the key. It's not so easily transplanted anyway, you know. <laughs> Let's not make it easy, but you know, there's God. There's no relation to the next person. Yeah. Now, the person that's got um, the message in his own heart, the person that, who might get to receive the life to be in the other world? No, no. You know, we are the person that's going to carry the promise of something. I want to go back to the only way. Now, being a donator, the nation that who has given his heart to somebody that is the present life in people going to be a uh, matter of the heart? How could you put it in your understanding? Well, I, I don't think that um, for you know the, the majority of scholars who hold that you know the donation of, of organs is allowable. And there is a body of scholars who hold that it's not. That you cannot transfer any part of your body to anybody else's body. Under any circumstance. There are those who hold it. But you say, given the opinion of those who hold that you can. The transferal of, you know, part of your body to another person's body. I mean, even that person is an evil person, a bad person, whatever. That doesn't you know, affect you in terms of standing before God on the day of judgment. Because that person is going to die, his body is going to fall apart. And when God, you know, brings you back together to be resurrected, you'll be resurrected as you were. You know, he will take and gather the atoms from wherever they are and recreate you. 
It doesn't matter that one of your atoms was in somebody else or whatever. It doesn't matter. You know what happened? They bury you. You die. Your body breaks up. You know, it's absorbed into the soil. Rain comes. It's carried through. It's picked up in the root of a tree. It grows into a banana. Somebody eats the banana. It's inside them. And it's not, we don't really give any special significance to that. You know, it doesn't really affect our situation on the Day of Judgment. It's perfectly okay. Yeah. Because as this man was doing, remember there's only two more chapters coming after and he was doing it in every rakah he would start off with so be sure he was not saying every time after each one no he was going maybe going to Baqarah going from all over the Quran so it is not required that you follow the order in the recitation uh, of course you know a number of people hold that it is preferable but uh we don't have anything specified by the Prophet to that effect. In his own recitations, you'll find examples where he recited in one <coughs> rak'ah, one surah, and another rak'ah surah which came before it, or a part of one surah and a part of another surah. Both both the soul and the body. This is the opinion which is the most authentic. You have a body of people who hold that it was just a journey of the soul. But if you look into the actual events which the Prophet uh, described and his companions described, you will see there is sufficient evidence to indicate that this journey was not a journey of the soul. Because when he informed the people of Mecca. If he was telling them something which happened in a dream, which was not him bodily going, they would, uh, they would not, there would not be no big thing for them. You know, they could accept that. You know, you dream, you go to sleep, you dream. You, you went to America and you were in the United States doing this or doing that and you came back it's all in a dream nobody's going to make any big deal but if you told me last night I went to America and came back this is a big deal now and this is what caused you know the, the pagans of Mecca to think that this they could cause Muslims to leave Islam when they related the story and you had some weak hearted Muslims who did leave Islam when the story was related to them also, on the way back, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu on his journey going, he saw certain things, you know, uh, on his way back, he uh, stopped and drank from a person's, uh, they had a, a jug of water, there was only a little bit left in it, and he drank it. Uh, there was uh, some people who had lost the camel, and they were searching for it, and he called out to them, gave them indication as to where the camel was. These things he came back and described indicate it's a physical journey not journey only on the soul and also huh? 
Well, there are a number of things. There's one narration which said, Prophet said that, you know, when he went on the Isra and the Mi'raj, he came back, his bed was still warm. This is something physical. I said, all these descriptions we describe here, these are all physical things. Well, we have to look at what is the purpose of prayer. You know, first, understand what is the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is the remembrance of God. Establish the prayer for my remembrance. So this is why we pray, to remember God. In the camera, and Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will see that. In our Father's I give fifty and this word. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. See, you're thinking in terms of numbers. You know, this is what you're thinking in terms of numbers. But as I'm telling you, the purpose of prayer is the remembrance of God. It is not an issue of numbers. Allah is not going to look on the day of Qiyamah, the day of, of resurrection. How many prayers did this man make? You know? So the more you make, the better off you are. It's not the numbers. It is the quality of the prayer. So if you are making a mutual prayer here, just going through the motions, you know, like a workout, a physical exercise, aerobics, and you go and you do one there and it's worth a thousand of these here, it's still useless. It's useless. The one which you do sincerely from your heart is better here than the one which you do as a ritual there. You understand? So what Allah has done for us because of the fact of the significance of Mecca the place where the first house of worship to God was set, to which pilgrimage, pilgrimage is encouraged for us to go. Going for what purpose? Going for the remembrance of God. So, Allah, through His grace, He multiplies the reward of your prayer there. Be sure, there are plenty of people in Mecca Praying there and getting zero for their prayers. And people praying here and getting reward that those people will never see. So it is about the remembrance of God. Those added blessings are added blessings for those who remember God. So when a person understands what it is, the purpose of prayer, and he's not concerned about numbers anymore. You see, he's not calculating and thinking. 
if I have 50 more years to live, in 50 years, if I pray five times every day, this is going to work out such a number. Now, if I go to Mecca and I pray so many times that will cover for my 50 years, I don't have to pray anymore. No, no. You see, this is a person who does not understand the purpose of prayer. He's thinking in terms of numbers. And what kind of prayer do you think he's going to make there? It's like the people are praying 20 rakat of Taraweeh in general. It's a, just going through the motions, going up and down. And you know, 20, when is it going to end? When is the Bob going to finish? You know, this is the most. That's why Prophet Muhammad didn't give us 20. He gave us 8. Something you can handle easily. But people made 20 for themselves. So they go through the They feel they have to do this 20. Go what benefit? So this is what you should keep in mind. The purpose of prayer is the remembrance of God. So if you remove that prayer from your life, then you forget God. And when you forget God, you become a devil. This is what it is. You want to be a servant of God or a devil? This <laughs> is what you have to decide. When you give up prayer, you become a devil. An evil person. This is why prayer is there for us. We organize our day around the remembrance of God. It is the basis of righteousness. The police in Bangladesh, I just read in the paper with it today, five policemen people who were there to uphold the law they took a young girl going to school raped her, cut her throat and left her to die these people are Muslim names I met you now these people were people there upholding the law why were they upholding the law? because it was a job they did what they were supposed to do as long as they thought that they couldn't get away with not doing it. When they found an opportunity, when they thought nobody is going to know, we can kill this girl, she's finished, we can take our pleasure, kill her and go. They did it. They were devils. Because they were not upholding the law for fear of God. See the difference? In America, back in the early 80s, I went to visit New York shortly after the lights, the electricity, the electrical grid of New York was shut down for two days and nights. When I got there, it looked like Germany after World War II. Stores were busted open, you know, it was just and they were showing pictures on the television of what was happening because the camera crews had gone around with big, uh, you know, beam lights and were <laughs> there were people coming to the stores. Everybody, not just the poor people, people were driving up in their Mercedes Benzes and what happened? The poor people they were going to the grocery stores, you know, the uh, supermarkets. The ones in the Mercedes Benzes they were going up to the fur stores and the and the jewelry stores. Why were people doing this? Because 
no light, no police, nobody knows. So they feel they can get away with it. So they will go and make crime. This is why you find throughout the Quran. Allah talks and gives reference to different prophets or individuals, you know, of evil happening to them when they forgot Allah. Satan caused them to forget Allah and they went astray. So this is why prayer is there as an institution in your life. As a Muslim it becomes a part of your life. Just like you breathe, you pray. You need to breathe to live, you need to pray to reach paradise, to live eternally in pleasure. So this is the purpose of prayer. And when you understand that, then you don't play the numbers game. Okay? Well, he didn't say, do not fast only on the tenth. He said, if I were to live to the coming year, I would have fasted either a day before it, along with it, or a day after it. In order to go against the practice of the Jews. It's just part of that general principle in Islam, distinguishing ourselves from the other religious groups. It is not prohibited for you to fast on the tenth alone. But it is preferable for you to fast the ninth and the tenth, or the tenth and the eleventh. No, but the what the hadith says is that you should not choose Friday out of the other days and specify it as a day for fasting. No, no, follow this, follow this now, follow this now. You are fasting on the 10th of Muharram. You are not fasting on Friday. This is not, so you understand, this is the 10th of Muharram varies from day to day around the year. So if it happens to fall on a Friday, you are not intentionally fasting on that Friday so that hadith doesn't apply to you. So that means they can pass only on the side. You could. You could. Yes. It's just like, for example, the fast on the day of Arafah. Prophet recommended it. Fast on the day of Arafah. When he does so, it removes the minor sins of the, pre- of what the previous year, of what was previous of the year, and what is to come afterwards towards the end of the year. This, but what? This year it fell on Friday. So the question is, were you allowed to fast on that Friday? Yes. You are allowed to fast on the Friday. Because you are not specifying Friday as a day of fasting. This is what is prohibited. Specifying Friday as a day of fasting. Okay. Also, 
at a time when the means of communication is so difficult and the term journey without any very mental work. Now, it is also clear that if a Muslim fails to pass on one day during the month of Ramadan, even if he passed for the rest of the year, I mean, without a valid reason or he is not uh, fit, unless he is fit for without a valid reason he has been passed. Even if he passed for the rest of the year, that is not compensated for the particular day. If he did not have a valid reason. And the prophet passes on a journey during the from the Nina to Nusra. Let me say this, brother. I don't really know, first and foremost, how authentic this information of the Prophet fasting in the journey is. But I will accept, as you say, that it is in Bukhari. And I will still check it up myself to be absolutely certain, right? But this is not the point. The point is that the compulsory fast of Ramadan didn't come until the second year after the Hitler. So this fast of the Prophet Muhammad in a journey cannot be used for uh, support of uh, insisting that a person who is traveling during Ramadan cannot fast because Allah has said in the Quran in Kuntum ala safarin if you are traveling you can make it up by another number of days finish so we cannot bring argument that the Prophet on his way from Mecca to Medina was fasting to say now you who are going to travel in Ramadan you can't fast and the Prophet had said that it is not from piety to fast while traveling it is not pious it is not particularly pious for you to fast while traveling Allah has given you a concession and he said that Allah doesn't like when he gives you concessions you don't take it because your boss is giving you a break, he's giving you a day off, and you say, I don't want it. <laughs> I don't need it. <laughs> so, we can't relate this one to this one. You know, it's, in the, it's not in the correct place. The point is, the fast of Ramadan only came two years after the Hijra. And Allah specified the laws concerning it. And the Prophet ﷺ further clarified them concerning the traveler, etc. So it is an option given to the traveler which is preferable though not compulsory. If you decide to fast, nobody is going to say haram for you to fast while traveling. Nobody can say it. But it is preferable not to. During the first week post, basically I happened to be ahead of you, you are going to be about yeah. How would you try to explain this question? Well, you know, we have uh, a brother who has changed his opinion, you know, concerning uh, insurance, because originally he said insurance is prohibited, life insurance. And then he changed his position to the fact that it is allowed. And surely you will find a variety of different opinions coming up. Right? What he is talking about in this article, as far as I can remember, 
he spoke of a person who becomes Muslim and has money in the bank with interest on it or a person who learns that it is prohibited for him to take interest on his money what to do from this point onward this is what he's dealing with he's not dealing with a person who knows that it is prohibited to collect interest and he is going to put his money in the bank and take that interest and do this and do that and do the other he's not dealing with it but still in spite of I just wanted to make a distinction in terms of what he's actually dealing with in the article this is his opinion and you heard what he explained and I gave you what I have understood from the Quran and the Sunnah concerning riba. and you hear the harsh words of Allah you hear the harsh words of the Prophet Muhammad and it's for you to decide brother if you want to take the nice soft words of Adil Salah and you say okay brother you can do this you know and you avoid the harsh words of Allah the Prophet on the day of judgment Allah is going to ask you for you Oh brother, this is a person this, this is a person writing in a newspaper. He has an opinion. An opinion which is shared by other people who are we call them scholars in Islam. We have scholars who hold this opinion. So I we can't say why is this allowed? I mean, is Arab news an Islamic newspaper? But, 